Whether you're conserving river otter habitat or your financial assets, it's all about asking the right questions. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Monday, June 12th, and this is In the Moment. While river otters are making a comeback in South Dakota, sightings of the Pinon Jay in the Black Hills grow fewer and farther between. SDSU researcher Amanda Cheeseman joins us to explain what these animals mean to our shared habitat and how new technology is making her research possible. And later this hour, financial therapist Rick Kaler shares how you can protect your best laid financial plans from, well, your kids. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry. In today for Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. News is first. You may remember images of massive flooding at Yellowstone National Park about this time last year. The waters washed out roads and bridges, stranded tourists, and engulfed entire houses. Within 24 hours of the disaster, a team of students and researchers deployed to the area. They were looking for perishable post-disaster data. Calvin Tom is a South Dakota Mines civil and environmental engineering graduate student. Calvin was on the ground conducting research following the flooding. He joins me now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Calvin, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. So we'll talk about that perishable post-disaster data in a moment, but start by setting a scene for us. Think back to arriving on scene in Yellowstone. What did you see? Sure. Uh, well, so we stayed in Gardner, which is on sort of the northern end, um, and it was really mind-boggling to see, um, you know, the, the, just the sheer level of destruction. You know, there were bridges that were supposed to be there, and we couldn't even see the foundations anymore. Houses that had been, you know, destroyed or rivers had run through them because they'd been diverted to run uh, through the home. Um, it was just the, the sheer level of destruction. I, it, I just hadn't seen anything like that before. Wow. So you're, you're on the ground, and you're part of this group called National Geotechnical Extreme Events Reconnaissance. Tell us about this group and your mission as you as you reach the site. Sure. Um, so it was it was a group of us. There was about ten all different experts in the in the field um, of different data that they had wanted to collect. There, our main main goal was to collect, like you'd mentioned, the perishable data. So uh, within you know 24 or 48 hours after the event, you know local townspeople. I mean, the community had already begin, begun, um, you know, fixing all the damages to these events. So th a lot of this data goes away really quickly. So it's on us to get out there, you know, right, right away and start collecting it so we can use this data to, you know, to help prevent this in the future and help, help guide people, you know, with different laws and permits and stuff like that that'll be placed in, in later so we can help guide people in the future to help prevent this. Mm -hmm. So uh, this information, tell us what exactly it is you're looking for and, and, and the use of it. Sure. So uh, my job was I collected a lot of um, like geodetic data. So I did a lot of surveying with drones. I collected photogrammetry data, which is just like um, uh, regular images. I did a lot of multi-specs. So we're hoping to use that for um, thermal imagery along with uh, some, some uh, surface, surface level mapping. Um, and I also did a lot of LIDAR mapping where we, we would take LIDARs out and do 3D um, scans of bridges that had collapsed, so then we could, you know, take that in later, and we would put it into a program, and we could look at the data that way. Hmm. Uh, you're we're a year out from this event now. 
Um, walk us through the steps. You get there on scene within 24 hours. Now we're a year out. What's the journey of collecting this information and what happens with it? Sure. Um, so on there, you know, it was a lot of lot of like 10-hour days where we'd collect, you know, thousands upon thousands of images. And then probably the, the week or two afterwards, um, we were, I was on the computer pretty much every single day processing all of this data so then we could create models. Um, and then some of the other experts would come along and then they could take the models um, and do what they needed to do with it. And we, we've created a report um, that'll be public for everyone to see. Um, it's about, last I saw it, it was like 200 pages long, so it's quite a, <laughs> quite a read. Um, and that's the, the report's still getting worked on. I mean, there's just so much data um, that it, it's taken us a year to even get this far on it. Um, and, and you touched on this just a little bit earlier, but we, we collect this information. You've got a 200-page report. What is the goal for collecting this information? Sure. So um, this data will be used for um, you know, future policies, other researchers. Um, some, some people might use it to validate some of their own findings from other research, um, or it, it'll get used by us for, for other future studies that we're hoping to use. But it, it's really to help benefit um, everyone and help make sure that these events don't happen again. Right. The idea being, you know, I, I, I guess um, you don't just have to live in Yellowstone to use this data is what I'm picking up on. Yeah. This can be applicable yep. for infrastructure uh, across the board. Yes, yep. Um, what stays with you as a grad student and, and as you move up in, in your career with an experience like this? You said you've never seen anything like it. Um, how does this uh, fuel your drive in, in what you hope to do moving forward as a, as a civic engineer? Sure. Um, well, honestly, the biggest thing that stuck with me from the event was the resiliency of the communities. Hmm. Um, you know, when we were there, you know, this was, you know, right after a disaster and some people had lost their homes um, and everyone was super friendly. You know, they, you know, hey, you have to go check out this event. Um, you got to go over here. There's some other damages here. Um, everyone was just so willing to help one another. Um, and to be, to be honest, that's what stuck with me with how friendly everyone was. They were willing to help um, their neighbor out, complete strangers. They were willing to help them out. Um, really the resiliency of the community. That's, that's really the, the big impact that I had. Hmm. My guest has been Calvin Tome, a civil and environmental engineering grad student at South Dakota Mines, reflecting on the research gathered uh, in the aftermath of the Yellowstone National Park flooding we saw just last year. Calvin, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice day. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Dr. Amanda Cheeseman is an assistant professor at South Dakota State University whose research covers water, land, and air. She's studying a charismatic aquatic mammal that's returning to South Dakota waterways, and she's looking at the slowly shrinking range of a blue-feathered friend now rarely seen in the Black Hills. Amanda joins me now from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Amanda Cheeseman, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. Um, I want to start with our feathered friend, the Pinion Jay, once very visible in Black Hills, not so much these days. You're looking into this with a grad student. Um, tell us about the Pinion Jay and why it's a concern that we're not seeing them so often anymore. Yeah, so they're this really cute, about similar size to a blue jay, blue little bird, and they're very social. So it used to be really obvious when you had a flock of pinion jays around. There's several hundred of them chirping around together. But since the mid-60s, we think we've lost about 83% of pinion jays. So they're experiencing around a 3% decline per year, as far as we know. And 
that's uh, putting them on the fast track for endangered status, and uh, you know, we're concerned about them going extinct. Well, to the yeah, to the layperson, that sounds extreme for a decline in that amount of time. Um, what's what's the the key research question that for for you as you're approaching this? Well, we're focused on. So there's a number of problems facing pinyon jay, um, and one of the big ones is that they live in these pinyon juniper woodlands, and pinyon juniper woodlands are also causing a lot of problems in the western United States. Um, probably one of the largest issues with pinyon juniper woodlands is that they are very susceptible to wildfire. And so a lot of management in the western part of the United States is managing these pinyon juniper woodlands so we don't have these enormous catastrophic wildfires. However, pinyon jays, as their name suggests, rely on pinyon juniper woodlands to survive and breed. And so there's concern that all this management to sort of thin out and reduce risk of wildfires within these woodlands may be negatively impacting these declining pinyon jays. And so the research of myself and my graduate student Emily Macklin is focused on trying to see if woodland management is negatively affecting these jays and if there are certain prescriptions that maybe are less beneficial than others, how can we do this in a way that has minimal negative impacts to this at-risk species? Wow. So this, this species is moving, it seems, largely out of South Dakota. Where are we finding them instead? Um, we don't have a very good idea of populations in South Dakota at all, as far as I'm aware. The work that I'm doing is primarily focused in central Colorado, where we have one of the larger populations of pinyon jays left in the country. Mm -hmm. So let's say uh, the pinyon jays are added to an endangered species list. Mm -hmm. um, for, for the layperson, like my assumption is that you know that comes w with some sort of protective policy. But then when we're looking at the habitat being such a concern when it comes to that wildfire question, I'm curious. I know we're not quite there yet, so maybe I'm putting the cart in front of the horse a little bit. But if we reach that endangered species level with the pinyon jay, how does that tie people's hands when it comes to preventing wildfires that may relate to that habitat piece? Yeah, it's going to make it all incredibly challenging. Uh, creating these management prescriptions to thin out woodlands already, you have to go through a number of hurdles. And if pinyon jay were to be federally listed, which they're under consideration right now, that would mean that land managers would have to go out and survey those woodlands to make sure there are not pinyon jays in them prior to conducting management would be probably one of the number one things that would happen, which would slow down that process and make it more time intensive. Hmm. Now, I know they're already uh, starting to do that to a certain degree. Uh, nobody wants to go chop down trees with little bird nests in them, so they do try to avoid that. Yeah. Um, but it would be likely mandated if that were to occur. Right. So you're also looking at, on, on the other side of this coin, a species that, at least on the state endangered species list, has been removed from that list because of successful efforts to reintroduce them. I'm talking about the river otters. Uh, tell us a little bit about your questions there as we see this animal now thriving. Yeah, so river otters, they're a really exciting story. They were uh, considered extinct in much of the Great Plains, and they were reintroduced in the 1990s by the Santee Sioux tribe. And since then, they've really been doing quite well. Uh, they 
it's thought that they've expanded their range across eastern South Dakota at this point and are starting to head West River. There's occasional sightings over there. And the issue or the concern that we have um, about these river otters is that most river otter knowledge is focused in these areas where they haven't been extirpated for the last 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, so most of our knowledge of river otters comes from forested environments. And obviously, eastern South Dakota, we don't have a lot of forests, <laughs> uh, which makes it really difficult to try to better manage habitat so we can continue to see these populations increase. Um, so one of our big questions is like, well, what is river otter habitat in these Great Plains regions? Um, since it's, it's not likely to be forests. Yeah. In our last uh, minute-ish together, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the artificial intelligence piece of this research. We've had a lot of conversations on this program in the past about different ways that different fields are using this emerging technology. You're using this as we look at our friends, the river otter. Tell us how. Yes, the river otters are very difficult to see. It's very difficult to get any sort of idea of their populations and where they occur. And so we're using trail cameras. But trail cameras rely on infrared sensors, which detect heat differentials. And otters, with their thick fur coats that help insulate them in the water, uh, don't have a big heat signature. So instead of using trail cameras the traditional way, we have them take photos every single minute that they're out there, hoping that randomly a river otter is in front of the camera during that particular time. Hmm. Now, it turns out this is working great, but it is resulting in over 3 million photos a year that we have to go through. So we're using artificial intelligence to scan the photos for us and tell us if there's an animal in them or not, which greatly, greatly speeds up the processing time of those photos. Wow, that's super interesting to me. We'll have to uh, keep keep up to date on this research and, and learn more about what you're finding. But uh, in the meantime, my guest has been Amanda Cheeseman, an assistant professor in South Dakota State University's Department of Natural Resource Management. And you can find additional coverage from SDPB's Zadia Abbott at sdpb.org slash news. Amanda Cheeseman, thanks again for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. So let's say you do everything right financially. You have a great relationship with a financial planner. You worked closely with them to create a long-term financial plan, and you're all set for retirement. But a potential danger to those best-laid plans could be some well-meaning family members. Rick Kaler is here to explain. He's the president and founder of the Kaler Financial Group. He's an influential financial advisor and our financial therapist for today and joins me now by phone. Rick Kaler, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Jackie. Good to be with you. So uh, when it comes to the uh, uh, best laid financial plans and when the parents bring the adult children into the equation, I am the adult child in my family's <laughs> equation. And if we're looking at the right questions to ask, I texted mom and dad this morning. What, what, should, what should I ask Rick Taylor about this? So direct from Pa Hendry this morning, the question, uh, initial question to you is, at what point do, do mom and dad need to sit me down and have this conversation about their financial plans? Um, how about uh, tomorrow morning for coffee? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dad, you heard it. <laughs> so there is no too soon for the conversation. There really isn't, especially when the uh, 
when the child is the uh, trustee, uh, co-trustee, the, is uh, like the agent of the power of attorney. Uh, so often, Jackie, uh, parents will designate a child to be in this position and then not let them know. Mm-hmm. And this this is so common. And then you have a life event. Usually it's a, a health crisis of some type. Um, the child has to step in and start making decisions. And it, it's overwhelming enough taking care of a parent that has a, a health crisis, but now having to make um, financial decisions on top of that can just be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So it's so important that uh, parents bring that that child into knowledge, if they have a planner, and that's kind of what we're addressing here, mm-hmm. uh, bring them into meetings with the planner so that they can begin to get up to speed because it doesn't happen in one or two meetings. And the handoffs I've seen work the best. Uh, I can think of right now of a client where uh, uh, there's no crisis. Uh, uh, mom and dad are fully functioning, but the uh, the adult child has been a part of every meeting for the last couple of years. Hmm. I have no qualms that uh, when that time comes that this child is going to be able to step in. Uh, had exposure is going to be able to uh, um, make really good decisions. But it's when that continuity, that familiarity isn't there uh, that problems can really come in. And it's not that the the kids are trying to sabotage the folks' financial plan. Uh, Usually the kids have all the best intentions, but oftentimes it it can really serve – to uh, cause a much bigger problem than than solve one at a time when when you don't need financial problems. Right, and I, I'm I'm fascinated by the dynamic of you as the financial planner. You've been working with clients oftentimes for several years. The crisis happens, and the power of attorney, the child walks in with pr- potentially no existing knowledge of the plan, and I'm. And plus, they're in, as you say, that emotionally raw situation of dealing with a parent in a health crisis. How do you, as a financial planner, approach a situation like that? Yeah, that's a really great question because financial planners are people too, right? Right. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there dealing with all of of my emotions mm-hmm. and the history. I mean, um, you're talking in some cases a history with a client for 30 and 40 years. And now there's a, a person before you that uh, really has very little knowledge of uh, that relationship. And it can be incredibly challenging um, because now you, you have several things going on. Sometimes you have immediate decisions that need to be made. And you also have to somehow start an education project process of bringing the uh, the uh, child up to speed. And usually where there's issues, um, I'm speaking in the context of doing financial planning where mm-hmm. you're taking care of all sorts of things, the insurance, the estate plan, the taxes, things like that. The, usually the focus is on the investments. 
and that can be uh, pretty um, challenging. And the one thing, oddly enough, that I find the the most resistance with a a a child that this has been thrust upon is when they look at the fee, the fee in dollars that's mm-hmm. being paid. Oftentimes, uh, they become very suspicious, and like that is a huge amount of money. And now. I find myself trying to stay off the defensive of having to justify, well, this is what we do. This is what we've been doing. And you could have a 40 years history of paying this fee. And the fee is um, often, well, we always communicate it in dollars, uh, where oftentimes it's just communicated as a percentage. Well, 2% sounds a whole lot cheaper than $20,000. Sure. So it it can present a huge amount of challenges um, in trying to bring that child up to speed. Right. I got some some wide eyes from the producer booth putting it in dollars versus percentages. And I can imagine being that (laughs) child in the room if I haven't had those initial conversations thinking, what? (laughs) Um, You know, the average uh, charge on a million dollars is 2.28% nationwide, which is $22,800, $22,800, right? There you go. 2.28 is a lot cheaper mm-hmm. <laughs> than $22,000. <laughs> so and where yeah, someone, you, you have your, your what you call your fee-only planners and may charge a percent, uh, where it's $10,000, well, $10,000 still sounds a whole lot more expensive than 2.28. And that's the, that's the issue we have with the brain. Uh, brains love... Um, percentages and not not dollars and that's a whole nother uh, conversation mm-hmm. but as as in so so many of these situations a financial planner as you say that's a relationship so if if indeed over those several decades potentially you are working with this client that means there's a there's quite a bit of trust between you and that client and making sure that uh the child or power of attorney gets that and is in on that before the crisis hits Exactly. I've had clients, I mean, I can remember times uh, sitting in our conference room saying, promise us you'll be here Mm. when we, you know, can no longer function. And those days have come, and uh, I can think of one client that recently passed on. And it, it, yeah, it, it's it's a relationship, as you said. It it it's an advocacy. It goes m- much further. It's not about products. It's not about in, in, in investing. It's about um, a, a person in their life, in their dreams, and protecting them and being there for them as an advocate. And so there's a there's just a huge amount of trust. I mean, oftentimes parents are telling us things they're not telling their kids, which mm-hmm. is part of the issue, right? Right. So it's uh that that's really tough to to bring in a brand new person and that child is just trying to do their best and has really been put behind the eight ball. Right. Another piece of this puzzle that I'd like to touch on is uh having that paid professional who is well versed in this even if I'm not, uh who also knows where all the documentation is. And, and and all those insurance policies and tax returns and titles and things. Um, another question, this one from Mom Hendry <laughs> this morning, was, uh, and, and 
for, I don't know if this is slightly outside of your realm, but I also imagine in addition to your clients, you're potentially working with uh, attorneys or folks in that legal sphere getting all this uh, power of attorney situation set up. What do parents need to know when it comes to naming a child that holds up legally and it expedites things from your perspective? Is there is there any advice you have there? Tons of advice. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gave you a big one there. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the the issue for a parent and in and, and naming someone is first you want to look at their familiarity. For example, powers of attorney, we typically have two, health and financial. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to use the same child on both. Um, you may have one child that lives closer to you that's better with health issues, another child that's uh, much more financial. So play to the child's strengths. Number two, don't name co-agents. Co, uh, mm. Try to go with one because that way you simplify the decision-making process. And oftentimes parents are like, oh, gee, we don't want to upset one child over the other. Well, uh, quite frankly, if you're not named, this may be a gift. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because being a power of attorney, being financial or or health, is a part-time job when that time comes. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot to it. So I I recommend, I I had one case where I had six kids all named as holding the power of attorney. That can get absolutely nuts. The third thing is do not feel, this is kind of like a societal money script, that you appoint one of your kids to hold these powers of attorney or be the executor on your trust. Think of this, and this is something I have really never seen written about in in, until I put this into a, a column. Oftentimes, the the power of attorney, the child holding the power of attorney, is a beneficiary to the estate. Well, that's an inherent conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Now, in most cases, this is not a problem. But it can become a problem. Uh, for example, I recently well, recently, within the last 10 years, had a conversation with a family, and the the kids were all on the call with the parents, and uh, one of them forgot to hit their mute button and said, we've got to get a hold of the money so there's something left for us. Eek. Oh, dear. I don't know how you keep a Um, poker face in a situation like that. I'll just toss that in as an aside. I am a great poker player. (laughs) 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 But, so, so... that all of those can be challenging. So my point is, which I didn't make, you don't have to appoint a kid. You can appoint a trust company. Mm-hmm. You can appoint a third party to hold these powers of attorney. Uh, in Rapid City, there's a firm called Black Hills Advocacy, and they are a third-party advocate that can step in and fulfill some of these roles. So don't think that it has to be a kid. And quite frankly, uh, if you have parents, and of course a third party costs money, that can afford to appoint a third party, you might want to send mom and dad a box of chocolates and some roses, because they just made your job a lot easier. Well, pro tip, mom and dad, I'm the only child, so don't think your don't think your hands are tied in that decision making. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
I want to uh, an, another issue in my reporting on uh, long term care and nursing home care. And we know there's shortages and, and difficulties, but there's the affordability piece. And I have heard discussions about the almost strategy that some folks have of moving assets around to this child or this situation or that so that the parent is then eligible for Medicaid to deal with the long-term care costs. That's right. another big one for you. Sorry to drop that on you. Yeah, but well, uh, why don't we get all the big ones together, right, <laughs> and get them solved in 20 minutes? Right. Um, but th- <laughs> uh, this my... is a tricky, tricky piece of the puzzle. What do you see there? Yes. Yeah, I see this all the time. And oftentimes when I just take pause and say, okay, let's talk about the emotions that are driving this. Usually it's fear. And usually there's uh, uh, some lack of knowledge involved in that. Because what is the fear? The fear is that mom and dad will run out of money paying for all of their um, uh, health care in the final days. And there won't be any left over for them to continue or for the kids. So Let's give it all away. Well, under Medicaid, which when you run out of money, you, be, you go on to title. It's called Title 19. I'm getting into the weeds. Mm-hmm. But that's where the state will pay all of the um, nursing home uh, expenses. You've got to give this money away five years before mom and dad go into nursing care. Hmm. I have never, I mean, I've been practicing for 40 years. When I go through and explain these things, I have never had uh, any client decide to do this um, because the, the state can claw back that money if you give it away, and it's four and a half years, the state can come back and take that money back from those that it was given to. Hmm. And also people have a, a, a negative reaction to the thought of, when you give it away, there can't be any strengths. It's gone. Yeah. And most folks just do not um, have that level of uh, confidence in not being able to access their money. Now, you, sometimes there's winks and nods between the kids. Yeah, if you need it, we'll give it to you. Uh, that, From a business standpoint, that is not a plan. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hold up. So... Th- uh, that is typically um, not not a great plan. There's other things, other ways that um, you can try and plan around for that with the use of certain types of trusts and things like that. There's attorneys that do that type of planning. But typically speaking, a person has worked a long time to afford uh, good care in their last days and Sometimes Title 19 does not give you good care. Hmm. So it's all down to what's really, really important. And with most clients, what's really important isn't leaving their kids a lot of money. Um, Most people that I deal with would be very happy if on the day they took their last breath, their last penny was spent. Hmm. So there's a lot of things involved in that decision. Well, my guest has been financial therapist and president of the Kaler Financial Group, Rick Kaler. You can find these tips and more regularly at his blog at kalerfinancial.com. Rick Kaler, on behalf of all three Hendries, thank you for your insight today, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch, I think. <laughs> Have a great rest thank of your you, day. Jackie, Mom, and Dad. <laughs> mm. 
Let's take a moment for South Dakota history. On this day in 1934, the Chicago Tribune published an article with the headline, Grasshoppers in South Dakota. The article called the hoppers Rocky Mountain Locusts. It reported a great deal of damage in eastern Spink County and concerns that the critters may take flight to other locations. A few months earlier, the USDA Insect and Pest Survey from March 1934 reported this. In South Dakota, we have had much wind and blowing of soil. In some areas, the soil has blown to such an extent as to expose many grasshopper eggs, which have dried out and died. Along fences, the soil has sometimes accumulated and buried the eggs from a few inches to two feet or more. However, there are plenty of eggs that are passing the winter successfully because the winter has been exceptionally mild and dry. Leading into the Dust Bowl years of the 1930s, grasshopper populations increased slowly from 1928 to 1930. They devastated fields of alfalfa, small grains, corn, vegetables, and a variety of fruit and shelterbelt trees. In 1934, the grasshopper was so prevalent that train locomotives spun out on the little pests coating the tracks and couldn't pull the train. To fix the problem, engineers would put one or two rail cars up front to plow through the grasshoppers. They would crush the insects ahead of the engine so it could pull the train. Grasshopper swarms were known to block the sun, and pilots reported them at 2,000 to 9,000 feet above the ground. At that altitude, one swarm was documented averaging 66 miles per day for four days. It flew from Highmore, South Dakota, to Beach, North Dakota. Although severe, the grasshopper problem wasn't new. In Laura Ingalls Wilder's autobiography, Pioneer Girl, you can read Laura's account of the grasshoppers traveling west until they finally quit the country. And O.E. Rolvog's Giants in the Earth describes a weltering turmoil of raging little demons spilling from an ominous cloud. That also is a true-to-life account of the Rocky Mountain locust as told to Rolvog by Norwegian immigrants who lived through it. But on this day, in 1934, the news of grasshopper swarms and damage in South Dakota had spread east to be published in the Chicago Tribune. Production help is provided by Dr. Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Each year, young women from across South Dakota entered the Miss South Dakota Scholarship Competition. And this year's crown graces the head of our new Miss South Dakota, Miranda O'Brien. She joins me now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Miranda, congratulations and welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Uh, tell us why this was a, a, a choice that you decided to run for this scholarship and, and what attracted you to the challenge of competing uh, to be named <laughs> Miss South Dakota. Well, this has been a six-year-long process for me. I started when I was a sophomore in college, um, and I was inspired by a friend of mine. I had never really known much about the Miss America or Miss South Dakota competitions, 
and she competed. She won Miss South Dakota, and she inspired me. And so I decided, let's give it a shot. Let's see what this is all about. And I learned really quickly that Miss America and Miss South Dakota are about scholarships, but also personal and professional development. And so my first year in the organization, I think I competed at five or six local competitions. So you have to have a local title before you can go on to compete for that state title. And I made it to the Miss South Dakota stage. It happened to be in Hot Springs back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, I was just hooked. And like I said, it's been six years, and I've worked really hard to be Miss South Dakota to be able to serve my state in this way, but also earning um, almost $25,000 in scholarships over the years, um, being able to graduate with my undergrad degrees and hopefully pursue my master's after I'm done with this year of service. Wow. Well, again, congratulations. And I know- Thank you. uh, uh, community service uh, is also a big piece of, of this puzzle. Tell mm-hmm. us about uh, your project, your initiative, I should say. Yeah, so community service service is one of the five points of the Miss America crown, and it's kind of one of the biggest points of our crown. Um, so each woman who competes has a community service initiative. It's something that she has passion for and wants to see you know, change in her community. So a few years ago, I started Page Turners, Fall in Love with Reading, and it's a literacy initiative to increase literacy rates by creating and sustaining a passion for reading through access, education, and representation. So in the last few years, I have been able to donate 10,000 books across South Dakota. We've started a podcast, the Page Turners podcast, where I've been able to talk with authors and people on unique reading journeys from not just in South Dakota, but across the country. And um, I've also worked with my dad and some of the great support system that I have to build little free libraries or little lending libraries. We've put up a few here in Rapid City, but we've also been able to put them up kind of across the state in Huron, Sioux Falls, all over. So that's been my passion project, my community service initiative, and now as Miss South Dakota, I get to build upon that and hopefully be able to expand that access, education, and representation. Uh, a full disclosure, I love a little free library. I, I love to, <laughs> I love just seeing those around. We have one outside mm, our studio, so, so that's exciting to me. So you would get points for me if I were part of this interviewing <laughs> process. Um, but tell us more uh, for someone, a young lady out there who might be considering if this is a path. Tell us about uh, uh, the, the process and what Mm -hmm. advice you might give to a future potential Miss South Dakota. A future potential Miss South Dakota. That's crazy to think about because (laughs) I've only been in this role and this job already for just a little over a week, but we're already planning for who's going to take over this job and who's going to take over this, you know, year of service after my time is completed. Um, So I'm already working with some of our local directors. We've got our first local competition coming up in Sioux Falls in um, about a month. I believe it's uh, July 15th. So if there's anybody who's interested, I say go for it. You know, I've always been somebody that even if something scares me, I've got to give it a try just once. And especially with this organization and this competition, there's only so long that you can do this. You know, we can compete until we're 28 years old. The Miss America organization has expanded our age range so that more women can have access to scholarships and pursue, you know, higher education, networking, all of the things that we provide. But if you're at all considering it, do it, because this opportunity is available to any woman across our state who meets those eligibility requirements. Um, So a little plug for me, if you want to compete, please reach out, (laughs) and I would love to help you. I had so many fantastic women that helped me and supported me over these last six years, not just when I started, but every day there were women who were reading my paperwork. They were helping me prepare in any way that they possibly could. So if I can do that for somebody else, I'm more than happy to. The lineage 
marriage continues. Miranda O'Brien, mm-hmm. the 2023 <laughs> Miss South Dakota. Congratulations and thanks again for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll close out today's program with some new music for your new week. On this episode of Fresh Tracks, our music guides bring some suggestions for your ultimate music library. If you plan to start collecting music, who are the artists today who will still have an impact for years to come? Larry Rohr takes the lead, along with Sturgis native David Hersrud, to recommend country artists to add to the ultimate music collection. Take a listen to a few of country's greatest hits. David, I had a couple of ideas for people in the country genre who might be included in that ultimate musical library. One of my qualifications was you needed to be a singer-songwriter, and you could probably choose a career in either. That thought occurred to me from friends that I I play music with regularly. A few of them spent a few years in Nashville, and they were the road band for Dickie Lee. Dickie wrote songs that others made hits, and he also had a number of his own hits. He wrote a song he described as the first time it went number one, he was able to buy a new car. The second time it went number one, he was able to buy a house. And the third time it went number one, his retirement was in place. He wrote the song, She Thinks I Still Care. And it was a number one for George Jones, then Anne Murray, and then Elvis Presley. That lineup, you have your retirement in place. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about that story, and my, my first candidate was Chris Stapleton. Now, Chris has been out there in Nashville for over 20 years. He wasn't there very long, and he got a, he got a gig with Gale Music, so he was recognized right off the bat with his catalog of songs. About the same time that he started singing with a bluegrass group called the Steel Drivers, he wrote a song the Steel Drivers did that was If It Hadn't Been For Love, which was a hit for Adele. Adele performed that. He wrote Never Wanted Nothing More for Kenny Chesney, a song called Homesick that uh, Sheryl Crow released on her album Feels Like Home. So he was finally showcased as an individual artist with a, a big hit in, in 2017 with a song called Tennessee Whiskey. Great song, by the way. You know, and I think this kind of set the the vocal theme that stayed pretty close to a real soulful country song, and he followed that up with another one that uh, has become a country classic called Broken Halos in 2019. about these artists that you picked out here mm-hmm. is their music transcends category. For example, with Chris Stapleton, you know, he's got a duet with, with Joy Oladuka. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, I always like to be able to 
have a conversation with somebody about it, about an artist and not get into a whole lot of reference as to, well, are they R&B, <laughs> are they blues, yeah. are they pop? I know for me, there was a, a long time when I wasn't listening to country music, but I got back into it because I didn't like a lot of the pop and rock music I was hearing. Mm, yeah. and, you, and that was where you had to go in order to get some new songs and listen to music that really had an impact. Take a look into the Chris Stapleton catalog for the Ultimate Music Library. The, the other one is I'm just fascinated by this woman and the personality she brings to her music is Casey Musgraves. And I want to point this out right now because it'll be important in a couple of minutes that she was actually born six weeks premature, and that was in 1988. Casey Musgraves actually competed on Nashville Star, a singing reality show. Way to go, judges. Uh, Casey came in seventh. <laughs> so, and it wasn't long after that, in 2012, she got a deal to release her first solo album. Uh, that album featured a song called Merry-Go-Round. Merry-Go-Round was really the breakout song for Casey Musgraves back in 2012. If you ain't got two kids by 21, you're probably gonna die alone. At least that's what tradition told you. these people, and, and Chris Stapleton, I think, fits into this mm -hmm. same classification. Yeah. I mean, there's other artists like Jason Isbell and, yeah. and things like that. Can't just pigeonhole them as being a country artist. And I love catchy album title names. Same trailer, different park. <laughs> that, that's the album, the merry-go-round. Got her nominations at the Academy of Country Music Awards, the 47th annual, and also quite a number of nominations at the Grammy Awards that year. And quite honestly, I'd been away from day-to-day -day country radio and hadn't picked up on, on Casey. The one that got my attention is the song Slow Burn. And if you want to know or have an idea where songwriters come up with ideas to write, I want to take you back to what I said earlier. Born in 1988 and born premature. And from that line forward, you'll know that Slow Burn is pretty autobiographical. I think she's an incredible talent. And I, of course, I got to tell you something. I also happen to like that have a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, the latest from Casey Musgraves is also a, a, a partnership with Adriel Favla and uh, a song called Sitting on the Corner. Those are my two offerings and ideas for consideration for the Ultimate Music Library, Chris Stapleton and Casey Musgraves. 
Check them out and enjoy. Great artists. Yeah. Just following in the footsteps of our musical guide, <laughs> David Herzrud with the Ultimate Music Library. David, we'll do it again. Thanks. Great to talk Take to care. you. Yep. Take care, my friend, and uh, good listening. Drive on until I get there. I drive on until I get there. We'll have more music suggestions for your ultimate music library next time on Fresh Tracks. You can hear a longer version of David and Larry's conversation on the music featured in this episode at sdpb.org music. That's our show for today. I want to say thank you to all of our guests. Join me again tomorrow to preview a new Frontline documentary investigating the dangers of the trucking industry. We'll also continue our conversation about the future of long-term care in South Dakota. We'll talk with Tim Rave. He's the president of the South Dakota Association of Healthcare Organizations. And summer means Shakespeare and Vermilion. We talk the Shakespeare Festival on tomorrow's In the Moment. And by the way, if you can't tune in live to In the Moment, subscribe to In the Moment podcast on most of our podcast platforms. Until next time, I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>